Welcome to the Period Story Podcast, the podcast where we get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods. We chat with women about their period story, their first period, their journey ever since, and we open up a conversation to help break taboos and stigmas around menstruation. I'm your host, Lenise Brothers. I'm a yoga teacher and registered nutritionist specializing in women's health, hormones, and the menstrual cycle. I'm also the author of You Can Have a Better Period, the book Publishers Weekly calls an empowering debut, an informative, refreshing take on women's health. It's available from Amazon, Bookshop, and anywhere else you purchase books. I'm so excited for you to hear today's episode. I have a great conversation with Cleo Wood, who is a maternal health advocate and journalist. Her first book, Get Your Mojo Back, Sex, Pleasure, and Intimacy After Birth, is a fantastic read and really goes into a really under-discussed topic, sex after birth. Cleo, thank you so much for coming onto the show today. I'm really excited to speak to you, to hear the story of your first period, but also talk about your brand new book, Get Your Mojo Back, which is very, very exciting. Um, but let's get into the first question that I ask all of my guests, which is tell me the story of your very first period. Oh, well, it's the story that everyone needs to hear, isn't it? Um, <laughs> thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure to um, talk to you. So I suppose for my first period, it's one of those ones that I I don't I don't often think about it. Um, and I guess many of your guests don't. And so I was thinking back to the experience. And I suppose it was a bit I was maybe expecting it to be more of a ta-da moment. Um, in my family, we didn't really talk much about, uh, you know, milestones in adolescence or anything like that. Um, and I had read a lot of teen books, loved a bit of Sweet Valley High. Um, I really loved the Judy Bloom books. And, you know, so the one that sticks in my mind around that time that I had just read was uh, Hello, God, Are You There? It's Me, Margaret, or something like that. Yes. Um, but it's the, one of the ones that a lot of people know about because, you know, it's got the like breasts, it's got periods, you know, bras coming, all of that. Um, and I had been at a trampolining lesson. I think it was a Friday night. I was about 13 and I got home and I had, I hadn't been feeling anything odd necessarily you know I was probably like uh you know quite hungry after the end of a long school day and then going to like a sports club and then I got home and I went to the loo and I had some blood in my pants and I was kind of excited but also a little bit nervous at the same time I kind of didn't really know what to, I mean I knew what to do practically I knew what I needed I was you know I needed a pad and so on um but I remember calling for my mom, um, you know, to kind of tell her. And uh, because these things kind of come out of the blue, she was all like, look, we're getting dinner ready. You know, <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> and she wasn't like rushing straight to my side and, you know, and, you know, kind of celebrating the moment or anything like that. Um, but yeah, so, so it was kind of, really everyday moment um but I then remember kind of wanting to maybe tell my dad about it but not really knowing how to broach it um and you know what hit even as and when I did what his 
reaction would be because it's not the kind of thing that he and I would spend much time talking about. Um, and even with my mum, you know, it wasn't something that I would I would really talk to her about. I mean, we had had the practical talk of like, you know, this is what you do, you know, here are tampons, here are pads, you know, you have a choice of what to use. Um, and we'd had, you know, sex education in school. Um, but all of that, I think, was much more focused on the practical side of things rather than necessarily any kind of emotional changes, how it might make you feel, um, the journey to kind of owning and empowering your own well-being and, and so on. So, yeah, I mean, looking back on it now, I think it was probably quite a nice, safe, comfortable first experience. But at the time, yeah, it, and, and at the time, it just it didn't feel like you know, that momentous or that dramatic. And I, I guess part of me really wanted it to be like, it felt like it should be, you know, you, um, I think in some cultures, and especially like in some stories, people would, you know, have a little period party or a celebration or something like that. And that just was not in the DNA of my family at all. And I suppose, you know, probably isn't from a lot of, um, you know, uh, kind of British upbringings either. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you want to tell your dad about that you got your period yeah I don't know uh, interesting question I suppose because it felt like uh an achievement you know yeah. like I was I was I guess yeah it's a really good question I guess maybe I was I was proud and I wanted him to kind of acknowledge and celebrate and like you know this is this is me growing up um but yeah, it's like, that's an interesting, that's an interesting point. I mean, I don't know, just what are people's, I would love to know what other people's reactions are in, in terms of like who they want to tell and who they want to kind of mark the moment with. I think about 90% of my guests, they either go to their mom or their sisters or mm. like maybe an aunt and like definitely like a female family mm -hmm. member. A couple of my guests, they didn't tell anyone except for their friends. Um, mm -hmm. But the majority of them, the dad, that conversation with dads has never really figured as far as yeah. what they've shared with me. So that's yeah. why I just found it interesting that you wanted to share it with your dad. And I think, you know, we should, that should ha be happening more, you know, more often because yeah. it's important for for parents, both parents, to know what's going on with their children. Yeah, definitely. I think that experience and all of my other kind of experiences growing up in terms of uh, well-being, sexual well-being, physical, mental, whatever it might be, that has really shaped how we have those conversations with our daughter well we've got two daughters but one is only one year old so we're obviously not having those conversations with her yet but like with the older daughter who's eight um we have very much you know wanted to own that from both sides and have that conversation she's really comfortable talking to either of us about things I'm sure that will change as she maybe gets a little bit further on into adolescence and and you know goes through puberty and so on um but I think it's really interesting. She feels totally comfortable talking to either of us about, oh, what's a period? Like, you know, tell me about the, <laughs> you know, how babies come or whatever. You know, we have this, we've had this conversation with her really openly. Um, and I remember when she was younger, kind of four or five, and I would be 
changing my pad in the loo, for example, and she'd be like, "Where's what's the blood? What's the blood?" And you know, so she's they're really interested, and I think it's I I, I wonder I wonder how other people kind of. Uh, are able to not talk about that because I do come across lots of women who on Facebook groups, for example, are like, oh my gosh, my 11 year old has just asked me where babies are coming from. Um, and I don't know what to say. And I'm like, well, how did you get to 11 before you <laughs> yeah. even had that conversation, first of all? And, um, or, you know, even seven, eight, I'm like, you know, and these are people with younger siblings as well. So they maybe have like, you know, six, four and two. And I find it quite amazing that they didn't have that conversation when these new babies were coming along as well I'm not saying that we're you know graphic and anatomical or whatever but we do we're very open with our daughter and in a child-friendly way about the processes what happens you know we use the correct names without getting too graphic um so she knows about you know, penis and vagina sex and so on and, and what a period is for and why you why if you don't have a baby, then you get a period and so on. Um, so I think it's a really interesting, I think it's quite interesting how my experience is, has shaped our approach in talking to her. And I just find it incredible that people are not having that conversation I ag- with, with their kids earlier. <laughs> yeah, I agree because um, when you, it's almost like when you learn about these things a bit older, you there can be a bit of shame attached to it because it's kind of like well firstly why didn't I learn about this earlier but then if you're leaving it up to the schools or friends then you know you don't you're not able to shape your child's view on these important topics so it's not just periods it's sex and you know you think about like the I think I've read some stat like 40% of nine-year-olds have seen some sort of pornography. (gasps) Yeah, I was really horrified by that. My son is nine, and I was just thinking, oh, my God. Like, Is that um, imagery or video? Video. Video. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's so readily available now, I suppose. So Yeah. Yeah. And leaving that those conversations, those important conversations up to the schools or up to friends, it just feels in this day, day and age really naive to be friends. Yeah, yeah. Just, you just have this huge opportunity to shape your child's views, but also to tell them that it's nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah. And when it comes to sex, you know, we'll talk more about that like later on in our conversation. But when mm-hmm. it comes to sex, to say, say like, actually what you see in these videos, that's not real sex. Yeah, It's not yeah. what it's like in real life. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think you're, I mean, that's an absolutely astounding statistic. Um, but I suppose given access to devices, you know, the average family has at least what four devices in the home two phones tablet you know smart tv whatever it might be um and you know our kids know our passwords or if it's unlocked if you know you put it down it hasn't locked yet and they get into it or they're they're on youtube they're looking for something else it happens to come up whatever it might be it's um is out there and it's it's getting to them so if you don't counter that with a healthy framework first that's going to be their first view 
uh, you know, visual imagery of sex. And that marks you, doesn't it? So Mm. I think, yeah. So, yeah, I feel very, very strongly about it, I have to say. (laughs) And I know you do too. Yeah. (laughs) So then you had this experience, a kind of run-of-the-mill experience of your period. It wasn't the the ta-da moment that you were expecting. (laughs) Yeah, or hoping for. (laughs) (laughs) And then what what was your experience of your periods like for the rest of your teenage years? So, I mean, not really anything dramatic. I suppose what I found quite interesting is that I am was and am quite sporty, did a lot of exercise, played, um, you know, played on a lot of hockey teams, netball, swam a lot. Um, and I suppose I just really sort of took it in my stride um, and, you know, carried on playing sports. And I know that for a lot of girls, when they reach that age, it then becomes a thing, right? It's kind of the cool thing to do to complain that you've got your period, so there you, therefore you can't do anything. And I'm not saying that that isn't the case for some people in terms of how they're experiencing their cycle, pain-wise or bleed-wise or whatever that might be. Um, but I was always surprised when people had that as a thing um, and – it's quite sad really um that it can make such a difference to people's experience of movement and activity and your relationship with your body um so yeah mine was kind of average never had really bad um pains or anything like that I was quite a my parents would say I was a very moody teenager you know I I had a lot of emotions going on I don't know whether that was related because I never you know took the time to notice or or kind of understand when these emotions were running high and if that was related to my cycle I suspect it probably was um but I also know that I grew up in a household that was fairly toxic there was quite a lot of unspoken anger and agendas underneath the surface my parents had quite a bad relationship you know from when I was quite young but they stayed together for quite a long time so I also was quite depressed I think in my teenage years but I never really got the help to to deal with that or or had the framework to express that properly it's only now when I look back and I was like well clearly there were some issues there (laughs) um so uh, so I think that was all kind of mixed up in it, I, I suppose. But in terms of the actual bleed and, and what it did to me on a month-to-month basis, I, I wouldn't have said it was, um, you know, game-changing. I, I kind of got on with my my life in and, and my activities in, in a way that I had done before. I think that's really interesting because I have spoken to quite a few women who they were sporty when they were teenagers and yeah. either it went a couple of ways. So it was like you, they just got on with it or they did so much sport that they eventually lost their period. Interesting. And they thought that, well, actually that's fine because it's, you know, it's a distract distraction. distraction. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's good. It sounds, it's great that you had like a really healthy relationship with your period in the sense that it didn't stop you from doing mm. what you wanted to do sport wise. 
Yeah. I mean, I suppose the, the, I never really had a super regular period, even all the way up until my 20s, even pre-baby. Um, you know, so I had my first daughter when I was 30-ish, 31, something like that. Um, and it's only now after my second baby that they've become regular again, which is really interesting. I mean, I was on the pill for a long time in my 20s. And obviously that definitely has an impact and you know I did uh the I, I I did the kind of unadvised thing of like you know rolling over pill packets and things like that if I wanted to go on holiday and you know so I, I think there was a lot of stuff in there around my hormones just kind of getting really out of sync and not really knowing where they are where they were so it's only now really that I've kind of in in my I'm 40 now only kind of now that I've come into what I suppose it, it should have been doing maybe 20 years ago. Um, but yeah, during my teen years, that that I suppose was a little bit annoying because it was a little bit unpredictable. Like I wasn't ever really sure when it was going to come. <laughs> um, but other than that, you know, it was, it was fine. Yeah. And then talking about your teen years. So in the book, mm. you talk a lot about your negative feelings about your body and how what you yeah. saw and TV and read in magazines, like teen magazines, kind of reinforce that view. But then you talk like quite poignantly about your journey and how what you went through in university and the impact mm. of like, you know, going to university and changing like the way that your body looked and how you ate and what that did to yourself and then kind of you found this this self-compassion you know which mm. is something we're we're all looking for but can you talk a little bit more about this journey because I think it's something that a lot of listeners will be able to relate to yeah and um, I think it's and I'm so glad that you brought it up because it is all kind of interrelated isn't it I suppose the first time that I felt awkward about my body was quite early on I mean I suppose periods aside because when I had my period it, it it felt like you know it felt like a cool thing to you know to get your period and I guess I was probably average I wasn't really early I wasn't really late um but you know you know who's got their period when you're in the changing rooms and you're talking amongst your friends or you're hearing overhearing gossip or, or whatever it might be um but I never really felt comfortable in my body in terms of its size and its shape um and I think the first time I experienced that I was maybe in prep school so I wasn't even 11 yet I was I was 10 and we were doing a school play and one of the teachers actually made a comment about how the dress fitted on me um and I just remember getting really hot and embarrassed not really knowing what to say but then kind of suppressing that get on with it you know, not ever really feeling comfortable again in what I was wearing, but just kind of getting on with it. Um, and I suppose that then carried on into senior school. So kind of 11, 12 and onwards, um, where I was quite short, a little bit plump, like, and, you know, a normal child. <laughs> but a lot of my friends were much taller than me that real kind of stick thin teenager, you know, where they, where people just like feel like they've been stretched, <laughs> you know, really gangly, quite like, you know, Bambi cult-like. And um, 
I, I was not. Um, and, you know, I, I, I was I was a little bit rounder. I obviously, you know, I was I was into sport and everything. So I was active. Um, but I just always felt like with those people around and with the magazines that I was seeing with all these like skinny teenage models in that my body type wasn't right. And I then started to, you know, I'd, I'd got my period and my skin was a little bit maybe greasier. I was getting some spots. I had braces for five years, like proper train tracks, top and bottom. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was still, you know, I had friends. I was fairly popular. But at the same time, I was always desperately trying to kind of fit in. And my parents weren't necessarily cool. So we didn't necessarily get the cool shoes or the right school bag. So we had to really like fight to, you know, there's a lot of pressure, isn't there, when you're a teenager to kind of fit in with, you know, everyone had kickers. So I really, really wanted to have kickers. And then everyone had a Kangol bag. So I really wanted to have a Kangol bag. And like, you know, all of these different things that um, contribute. I suppose, to your sense of self-worth in your adolescent years. And I was always just really struggling to get those right. And I think it was really, it's only in my later years, when you get to kind of late 20s, 30s, 40s, that you really start to own the power of being different. Um, And in a school context, and even in a university context sometimes, you want to fit in, you want to follow the herd, you want to be popular. And you kind of don't really appreciate that actually the ones who are different at that stage are probably the ones that are going to go on and change the world. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it's the it's the kind of inverted commas nerds and geeks who are the ones who are like super brainy, have the connections, have the ideas. And, and you know, Bill Gates was not a cool guy, but he's like you know how successful has he been yeah um and and it's it's things like that isn't it that you don't really appreciate because you can't see that when you're younger all you can see is what your friends are thinking of you and is everyone laughing at me because my shoes are not quite the right style or whatever yeah um so I did really struggle on that journey and it did lead to a lot of um yeah just I guess disordered eating like I got to university as you say and I happened by chance to lose quite a lot of weight over the summer um between going uh between being at school and going to art school afterwards and then on to university and I remember one of my friend's dads commented on it um just being like oh you you know you've you've lost a lot of weight like you look great or whatever something like that you know it was not meant in a sexual way it wasn't meant to be you know anything untoward but those sorts of things you know that for me really stuck in my mind and I was like oh great you know that's that's something that I should you know be mindful of from now on and uh you know you can go to university and it's a different environment and you can can create your own um narrative a little bit more than you can in school because particularly if you've been in the same school for seven eight nine ten 12 years whatever it might have been and I was in the same school for quite a long time um so you can kind of go and and create that new voice for yourself and that new history and I wanted to really lean into that and own that kind of popularity and you know particularly with with boys as well like I had never had that um approbation from boys guys men whatever before and now that I had you know supposedly got hotter (laughs) (laughs) I I really lent into that and that 
was not a healthy thing longer term because it meant that I placed a lot of um, importance on what I ate, trying not to put on weight, um, you know, wanted to go out and dance and kiss a lot of boys. And that then leads to that whole conversation and that double standard around, you know, sexuality from for men and for women particularly in a university context where everyone is having sex all the time but you know it's only the women who are kind of castigated for that um you know it's a very fine line isn't it you're either oh god she's so frigid she you know she well she's a tea she leads people on you know she dances with people and then doesn't do anything with them whatever between there's a really fine line between that and like oh well you know she slept with him and you know she slept with that other guy last week and you know she kissed like this many guys in one night and it's like well hang on if the guys are doing that as well no one's talking about them in those terms so you know what where is that judgment coming from it just made me so angry like I could never I, I I can articulate it now and obviously I've written about it in my book but at the time you just kind of get through it, don't you? You're like, okay, well, <laughs> you know, I, I still don't know what to do, but this guy seems to like me and, you know, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to get on with it and see what happens. And then, you know, uh, that leads to whatever, whatever gossip yeah. um, it's going to lead to, um, which is really sad. Um, yeah. And I look back on it now and I feel really sorry for myself in that situation. And it makes me really scared because... I have daughters and like, please, God, it's not that bad when they get there. You know, hopefully the dialogue has changed and hopefully I can empower them enough to stand up for themselves and know how to navigate that because it's really difficult. Yeah, I think it, the late 90s and the like early 2000s were just a very toxic time for women in the culture. Like a lot of like slut shaming. Slut shaming. And, you know, just, you just, I, cause I, I think we're around the same age. So, yeah. you know, going to university and, you know, I do remember that, you know, yeah, girls, you know, you, oh, she's a slut cause she slept with all these guys, but then, you know, you'd have a, a guy who had had like sex with lots of girls and he was like, he was a hero. He was a stud mm-hmm. and it's just, it's so disempowering and I think it's you know it's a left left a lot a mark on a lot of women in in our like who grew up in in the same era as in that where, era yeah and this actually leads quite nicely on to the next question I want to ask you what is around female pleasure because mm-hmm. you know you think back then it wasn't the conversations around female pleasure were very different to yeah how they are today so it was very much about how can you pleasure the man you know what can yeah. you do best blowjob techniques and all of that yeah. kind of thing yeah whereas now the conversations are very very different so can you talk a little bit because in in the last kind of couple of chapters of your book you talk about sex and you know reestablishing connection which we'll talk about a little bit about but Let's just kind of start by talking about the importance of female pleasure. Oh, my God. So important. And I think, you know, you you referenced earlier about uh, children's access to porn and seeing that really early on. And obviously that really can frame, you know, porn is really the only other 
representation of sex that we see if it's not ourselves right like it's not like we go and watch our friends and see how they're (laughs) doing it um so it can really frame you even though you know it's not real if you see something enough times then it becomes normal and so I and and obviously in traditional male gaze porn the focus is not on women's pleasure I mean I think yeah they're showing cunnilingus a little bit more now but it's literally I mean it's it's so uh unrealistic it's it's ridiculous <laughs> um and they basically spend like two seconds doing that before they move on to penis and vagina or some kind of other penetrative penetrative sex and I think it is really important to kind of acknowledge that we're talking a little bit more openly about self-pleasure and and how important it is and and how important the clitoris is and how much bigger um it is than we were taught when we were growing up or, or we had reference for um and how important it is for you to kind of connect with that um because particularly if you're viewing your body with such antipathy maybe even hatred you know as I was why on earth would I connect with myself and show myself love like it was all about me trying to please other people and that goes into the bedroom as well um and I just remember having you know so many uh so many situations where you know I I didn't even think to ask and it certainly wasn't the sort of topic that would you know it's not it wasn't a conversation that we would naturally have in in bed because uh you know I had one long-term boyfriend when I was at university but the rest were kind of you know dalliances shall we say um so you don't kind of connect with that person in a way that you might if you are in a long-term relationship and you perhaps don't feel as comfortable and open having that conversation um I remember we I went to an Anne Summers party um I think in my first or second year and the conversation was all around like girth of the vibrators and length and so on and I was a bit like looking back at that now I'm like I mean that, but that isn't going to make a difference to it. I mean, it might on some level, but also, you know, that isn't the only thing that is important in a sexual experience, and that certainly isn't the only thing that's going to make a difference to our orgasms. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think definitely I didn't do well at that when I was. I, I found it probably quite hard to kind of open up and own that within myself in my teen and teen years as I got into my 20s and 30s it's definitely something that I felt more comfortable with and felt more ownership of but yeah I think there's a certain amount of shame there isn't there around like asking for what you want because if you're a good girl you don't ask for things in the bedroom (laughs) um and that's not a conversation that you want to have you kind of you know even now there's a um uh, in NATSAL, which is the National Study of Attitudes to, in, Towards Sex and, and Lifestyle or something like that. But they do a survey every 10 years. And even now, it's like 20% of people have never even spoken to their partner about what they pref- what their preferences are in, in the bedroom, which is quite a lot, especially yeah. if you've been with them for, say, you know, 10, 5, 10, 20 years. Um so I think, yeah, definitely the whole like self-pleasure and owning, uh, if, well, pleasure for women and the capacity to own that through self-pleasure is is something that is really important. It certainly wasn't part of my formative years and it's something that I've had to kind of learn and 
be comfortable with in my late in my later years you know in my from from my late 20s onwards I think. Mm. So you talked about having conversations and the importance of communication and Mm. just thinking about you know the title of your book is get your mojo back and one of the things that you talk about in one of the chapters in your book is called how about after the washing up darling which I, <laughs> I chuckled at um, and it talks about navigating the practicalities of sex and intimacy in real life and one of the things you talk about is communication um, someone might be listening to this thinking well you know I'm really scared to have those conversations you know yeah. I don't know I don't know how where to start I'm nervous I think I feel like I might be shamed for yeah. you know being quite you know owning my sexuality okay. yeah. and being yeah. open where would you suggest that they start and such an interesting question because I think uh I there is a tendency in our spheres I think you know when we do talk really openly about this and about periods about well-being sexual health and so on to assume that everyone is on the same page and they're in a really open and communicative relationship as well (laughs) and it's just not necessarily the case and I tend to think of communication and talking to each other as one of the most boring pieces of advice that I can give but it's the one of the most crucial ones um, because everyone can do it and it will make a difference. It can be really hard if you have never broached these sorts of topics before. I would always advise getting comfortable with what you want to achieve from that conversation. So getting comfortable with where you are learning a bit more about yourself, coming back to the self-pleasure conversation, what turns you on, what you want to do, perhaps what you want to change, what you might want to do instead. And also be open to hearing what the other person has to say as well, because in a really positive way, actually opening up this conversation might be something that they've wanted to do for a while, but haven't felt the opportunity to either. Um, It can be really hard to make the first step. I would say sometimes taking it out of the bedroom can be the best place to do it. It will depend on your comfort levels in terms of, you know, each relationship is different. Each method of communicating is different. So if you are worried about having this conversation, raising it whilst you're doing something else, whilst you're not facing each other can be a really powerful way to do it. The amount of important conversations that we've had going for a walk or, you know, walking, if you've got a dog going for the dog walk, you know, um, whilst your kid is like off in the playground and you're just like standing there watching. Um, <laughs> uh, if you're in the car, you know, driving somewhere because you're there, you have each other's attention but you're not necessarily facing one another. So it it doesn't feel as confrontational. Um, Sometimes I really uh, advocate uh, conversational prompt cards. Um, So there are various games now, which are kind of conversation relationship games. Um, One's by Vertelis. I think the School of Life does one. Um, And whilst they are not necessarily going to address your specific question straight away they're really great for kind of just setting the tone for a little bit more of a meaningful conversation which we don't often get 
in a house where you've got kids and you're running around after them and you're super tired. So if you can kind of get into that mindset of asking and answering slightly deeper questions, after the second or third one, you usually find that the conversation flows off in the direction that you meant it to anyway. So those one first first two or three questions can be really useful in setting the scene and kind of opening up for both of you. And look, it might not happen the first time. So maybe you do that. And then the second time you do it, or the third time you do it, then maybe you feel able to bring up the conversation around sexuality and, and what's what's pleasing and what's not and what you might want to change for your own pleasure and for your partner's pleasure in the bedroom as well. Um, so I think those are, those are my two, you know, to make it less confrontational if it is difficult for you, not doing it in a kind of face-to-face setting or turning it into taking the pressure off by focusing on something else first in order to really kind of delve into, you know, where you are emotionally and, and, um, in the relationship as well and then kind of bringing it up is a really good way to go about it mm. it's such an interesting one because i think in our culture we have this skewed idea of how much sex people are actually huh. having and <laughs> you know you have this you need, if you base everything right what you saw on tv you would think yeah. that people are absolutely rampant but the yeah. reality is much much different and yeah. I think that's also important to to kind of to acknowledge that, you know, it's not just about having like sex, whether it's penetrative sex or any other form of sex. It's also about intimacy and yeah. that kind of closeness that you can cultivate with your partner through communication, um, through touch, through yeah. like different, you know, maybe it's acts of service you know, all of that sort of thing, um, thing that's really important to bring closeness back into the, into the picture. I a hundred percent agree. And Esther Perel actually has a, uh, an amazing quote, which is, uh, foreplay starts the moment that sex ends. The point being that if you're nice to each other, that creates a really lovely intimate environment that is there longer term so your base level of like niceness and wanting to kind of be intimate with each other just raise it rises a little bit so then from there it's not such a big leap to kind of have sex or you know have a bit of a kiss on the sofa or um you know whatever it might be be intimate with each other and, and give each other pleasure because you kind of feeling a bit little bit nicer towards the other person anyway and you're inclined therefore to kind of want to want to give them more pleasure want to connect with them more deeply um and I think that's absolutely right so you know it doesn't always have to be about sex it can be a touch in the kitchen it could be a little cheeky squeeze of a bum it can be you know making someone a coffee when they're not expecting it or you know pick it, offering to pick the kids up when it's not their turn or whatever it might be you know sitting on the set having a makeout session on the sofa like yeah. those little things I think really build that connection and I they're kind of underestimated because you kind of think it's all or nothing you know okay well everyone else is having sex at least once a week we need to be having sex at least once a week so therefore and that's going to be better for us than actually you know maybe just holding hands whilst you're watching your film that evening or whatever it might be 
Yeah. Um, and I just think, you know, coming back to your point about, you know, oh, how often are people having sex? It's literally the only thing that no one is ever going to know if you lie about. So I just, you know, when we hear these stats of like, oh, Britain's are doing it, you know, twi- twice a week and, or like, if you're doing it less than this much, you know, you need to be doing it more or whatever it is. There's always these headlines in the Daily Mail, but like, how do you know that's true no one's in your bedroom like (laughs) recording you and like ticking it off it's just on you it's on your word so don't believe everything that you read (laughs) don't believe everything that people are saying as well because I know in for example I've I've, um, anecdotally from people that I've spoken to you know people in NCT groups are going oh yeah we had sex and it was totally fine like you know now we're at it like rabbits again it's like six weeks after the birth I'm like are they actually or are they just saying that because that's what they think they're supposed to be saying um stay in your own lane when it comes to sex like there's no right or wrong in terms of like frequency as long as you guys are both happy about it and you're connecting the right amount for you and that you've spoken about it and you're on the same page then I think that's that's the best that you can do is and and that's a a really good place to be definitely and I think that's kind of leads nicely into this like kind of idea that you know, the fundamentals of a relationship, it's not sex, it's communication and mm. being able to communicate on lots of different subjects, but feeling like you can communicate without judgment, without feeling like you're going to be attacked, without feeling like you're going to be have to go on the back foot, you know? Yeah. That's where partnerships are most successful, where you can talk to the other person Yeah, I think that is a really interesting one about raising things without feeling like you're going to be attacked. Because I think quite often in this context, if we're talking about sexual well-being or amount we're going to have sex or what type of sex we're having, it can be quite easy for the other person to feel attacked if you're suggesting a change. Mm. So that's something to bear in mind as well. Like you obviously don't want to be attacked for bringing bringing it up. But equally, you know, maybe that's going to put the other person on the back foot and then they're going to be really defensive and kind of snipe back at you. So I'm not saying it's easy. Um, And I come from a place where we did a lot of couples therapy as well. And that can be really useful in terms of helping you to communicate and set the framework of, of being able to communicate with the other person because And that's, it's not, you know, I'm not saying that everyone needs to go and do it right now, but if it gets to the stage where actually that third person as a neutral party can help you communicate better, it's well worth it. Hmm. I mean, we could have, we could talk for hours about this. I find this topic (laughs) so interesting, Uh, but for listeners who want to learn more, who want to read your book, can you just talk a little bit about the book and then where they can find it and where they can learn about sure. more about you. Sure, I would love that. Um, so I wrote Get Your Mojo Back, um, Sex, Pleasure and Intimacy After Birth it, because of my experience postnatally after my first daughter. I really struggled physically, mentally uh, to rehabilitate, to find myself again. Um I had scarring and a hypertonic, a two-type pelvic floor, which led to really painful sex. But alongside that, there were a lot of emotional and mental health things going on, like postnatal depression and birth trauma. And my husband and I nearly got divorced at one point. And 
the book is kind of based on the things that I learned along the way and the ex- and and the information and the wisdom from the experts that I met and learned from because I did not feel there was support for what I was looking for at all. And I talk to people now and they're still saying, look, I, I, I don't know what's wrong. I don't know who to turn to. My GP hasn't got time for me. They've just said, just get on with it. You, you know, you've, you've, just, you've had a baby. That's how it is now. And I just think with sex, it's still one of those really taboo topics, particularly postnatal sex, because, you know, you're a mother now. Why would you want to need, you know, why do you need to have sex <laughs> why, why do you need to you know be thinking about pleasure because you know you know you're now in this different phase of motherhood well you know sex is how we got to being mothers in the first place so I think it's they do go hand in hand even though culturally we don't really talk about motherhood and kind of the siren in the same uh in the same space so uh that is where the book came from it's full of a, my own story and experiences the experiences of other kind of relatable real life women um it's got lots and lots of information from experts and um uh, snippets of uh you, you know exercises and tips that you can try and that will help improve where you are mentally physically sexually and lots of signposting as well to further resources and there's also uh i love this bit i i really was keen to put a decision tree at the end of the book because so often you're kind of like i just don't know where to start mm. um i i've got a problem but i don't know what it is and i don't know what's causing it you know how how do i find what what's my first port, port of call um and that's what i really wanted to help people with is just to unpick all of these different things that could be the issue and help you find out where to start so um yeah it's available at you know amazon waterstones if you google it you'll be able to pick it up online um, and also on my website as well which is andbreathewellbeing.com and I would love to interact with you on Instagram if you have any questions and I'm at andbreathewellbeing um so yeah th- those are all my <laughs> those are all my bits <laughs> so if you if you want to leave listeners with one last thought today of all of the brilliant things that you've shared what would you want that to be just because you've had a baby doesn't mean you have to put up with whatever issue it is that you're going through. You deserve to be listened to and you have the power to advocate for yourself. Brilliant. Brilliant. I love that. I love that. I'm a big fan of self-advocacy over here. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it's, it's necessary, isn't it? Yeah. So. <laughs> So thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's so been brilliant to speak to you. All your links will be in the show notes. Um, All your links will be in the show notes. Um, Yeah. And thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Denise. It's been great to chat. For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 30-minute hormone health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram and Twitter on at periodstorypod or email us at hello at periodstorypod.com. I'm Lenise Brothers, and you've been listening to Period Story.
Thank you so much for listening.